Welcome to That Said. I'm Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will speak with Susan Glasser and Peter Baker about their new book, The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III. Susan is a staff writer at The New Yorker, where she writes a weekly column on life in Trump's Washington. Peter is the chief Washington correspondent for The New York Times, responsible for covering Trump, the fourth president he has covered in his career. Welcome to That Said, Susan and Peter. Great, great. great. Good to see great. you. Good to see you. So I think you are one month into the 20th year of your, your marriage, which is uh, remarkable given that you write together. So um, mazel tov on that. Well, we're still speaking, right? It's working out right. so far. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's really great. So James A. Baker, you write of Baker his career demonstrates what it takes to be to acquire political power, to yield it effectively, to reach bipartisan compromises, even after bitter campaigns, and to wrestle with the tension between partisan loyalty and the principles of go good government. So my first question is, who is James A. Baker III, and why did you decide to spend seven years of your life <laughs> biographizing, if that's a word, him? I think it should be a word, yeah. Why don't we do that? Okay, well, we, look, we thought that, uh, thank you very much for having us tonight. And we thank Shelley and the whole uh, museum and everybody who's joined in. We're really excited to have a chance to talk about this book with you because this book, we think, tells a story not only of a person who is really interesting and fascinating at the height of power for a, a generation, but really about Washington, the time when he was uh, you know, at the echelons of, of, of the government uh, and what it is today. And I think that uh, one reason we wanted to write it was it was a broader story. It wasn't just a one-off. It wasn't just one person's uh, encounter with power. I think the, to understand Jim Baker's experiences in Washington and how things worked then is to sort of understand how much has changed in Washington today. And I think Baker sort of exemplifies that. But it should be, to be clear, we didn't plan to spend seven years doing <laughs> this for sure. Uh, we began this back in 2013 and, uh, you know, what seems like an eon ago, but the, the dim mists of the Obama era. It was already clear then, I think, that, uh, you know, Washington was uh, uh, a much more dysfunctional, divided, gridlocked, uh, and partisan place than it had been in the 80s and 90s when Baker was sort of at the apogee of his power. And, you know, obviously that's only become more the case these last uh, few years as Trump has come to power. And I think that was sort of the, the context that became uh, the frame in which the book came out. But we definitely didn't intend it uh, uh, to be perhaps as relevant to today as it, it suddenly seems to be a week before this election like no other. Yeah, and, and it is a story of Washington, of where we were, where we've been um, in recent times, the, the Bushes and um, the, the Obamas, to where we are now with the, with the Trumps. And what's interesting to me is there's this sense in, outside of Washington, that there's a normalcy to what's going on here. And it doesn't strike me as there being anything resembling normalcy. You've covered, Peter, four presidents. Susan, you've been around almost as long. What do you, what do you see? How do, looking at Washington today through Baker's eyes, what do you, what do you see? Well, you know, as, as Susan pointed out, we started as even under Obama. And even by that point, 
you know, Washington felt broken in many ways. We talked with Secretary Baker so many times over these last seven years. He would just sort of plaintively say, why can't they just get stuff done? Why do they, you know, he seemed very upset that Washington just focused so much on the partisan uh, game playing and, and battling to the, to the point where they never got around actually getting, getting things done. Obviously, that's only gotten worse in the last four years. Imagine this, the COVID relief bill has been sitting on Capitol Hill, uh, subject to dispute between the president and the Congress now for six months, seven months with people really hurting and they haven't gotten that done. I have to think that if Jim Baker were around Washington today, he would have gotten a deal done much, much faster because he, he recognized that being in power wasn't just about keeping power, it was about using it to get things done. Yeah, he was an innate deal maker. He 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 demonstrated from early in his his political career the ability to accomplish things. In in the way you write it is so interesting to me is that he knew what he wanted, he knew what the person with whom he was negotiated needed, and he was always able to find the middle ground to allow each side to get what they needed out of the deal. And and one of the stories, you tell a lot of wonderful stories about this, but one of the stories that I've always found um, so refreshing uh, about this deal-making business is Edwin Meese and 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 the deal Baker strikes. So maybe you could start us back a little bit in giving us Baker's biography. Because remember, Baker doesn't come to town as a as a Reagan guy. He really comes as an anti-Reagan guy, and 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 then he finds himself in the the seat of power in the Reagan administration. So tell us tell us that biography, and then lead us into the deal that he makes with Meese, because I think it's quintessential Baker. Well, I think you're right to point that out. So, uh, you know, Baker was a, actually an accidental indispensable man in Washington, didn't even enter politics, never mind at the highest levels, uh, until he was 45 years old and came to Washington in an obscure position at the Commerce Department in the Ford administration. Uh, he had uh, the good fortune of having a best friend from the tennis court to the Houston Country Club, George Herbert Walker Bush. And, uh, you know, through that friendship and uh, the sort of tragedy of his first wife dying of cancer at a young age, Baker decided he needed to make a change in his life uh, and ends up uh, very accidentally in politics within one year of arriving in Washington at the age of 45, he goes from the Commerce Department to running Jerry Ford's presidential campaign, the presidential campaign of the incumbent president of the United States. It's 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 such a breathtaking story. You, you can't find any other examples of that. Never mind, you know, the the later acclaim that Baker would go on to at the White House and Treasury Secretary, Secretary of State. Even just that story alone of just being able to rise in such a fashion. You know, he's also, of course, the product of the end of uh, Watergate, which was like a neutron bomb wiping out an entire generation of Republican operatives so that people like uh, Baker and Bush had opportunities they might not have had, uh, had, not, had Nixon not imploded so spectacularly. So by the Reagan administration uh, and 1980, Jim Baker has won, run not one, but two campaigns against Ronald Reagan, uh, national campaigns. So for Reagan to uh, invite Jim Baker into his inner circle speaks, first of all, uh, volumes about how 
competent and how well he was perceived by at least some of those around Reagan. His reputation had grown uh, very quickly and very astronomically. And he was seen by a couple of Reagan's advisors, Stuart Spencer and Michael Deaver, as uh, being uh, exactly what they needed in a chief of staff, especially because Ed Meese, who you mentioned, uh, was their mortal enemy in the very internecine warfare of that Reagan inner circle. Uh, and Meese was sort of the ideological keeper of the flame of the Reagan revolution, but uh, he had been Reagan's chief of staff uh, when Reagan was governor of California, and he was a, a disaster, frankly. His, his briefcase was known as the place where paper goes to die. Uh, and uh, so I think that even then, Baker's reputation well-deserved for a sort of hyper-competence uh, and extreme preparation uh, uh, and a level of strategic thinking to, you know, the day in and day out, day out practice of politics. Those were the kinds of things uh, that the other Reagan advisors admired in Baker. And as you said, it was all sort of crystallized in that that very first deal with Ed Meese. Right. That deal with Ed Meese. So uh, when, when Reagan picks Jim Baker to be his chief of staff, he says, look, make it right with Ed. He doesn't want Meese to, Reagan doesn't want Meese to feel uh, bitter or upset, although he does. And so Baker sits down with me and says, let's just divide up our responsibilities. You'll be counselor to the president. Uh, you'll have him charge of the policy councils. And I'll just take care of things like personnel and, and the paperwork that goes to the Oval Office and the press and the legislative thing. And tell you what, Ed, because we want to make sure everybody knows how important you are, we're going to give you cabinet rank, which you know makes him up there with the Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense and so forth. And Meese loves this. Meese thinks this is great. What he doesn't understand is Baker's just kept all the important tools of the power for himself. What's important in the White House? Not cabinet rank. Jim Baker knew that. That's just a title. It doesn't mean anything. What he kept was paper that goes in the Oval Office, legislative affairs, which means uh, you know bills that can be made into law, press and communications. These are things that actually are levers of power in the White House, which Baker knew and Meese didn't. Yeah. And still to this day, when you speak to Meese and you say, well, how did that work out? He says pridefully, well, I was a cabinet secretary. Exactly. He's, still, he, he's still so pleased with having received that title, even though Baker, who, as you said, managed Ford's presidential campaign against Reagan, then managed George W. Bush's campaign against Reagan. And here's Meese, who is the closest confidant of Reagan from his days as governor, sort of pushed aside so gracefully by Baker that um, both come away happy. And, exactly. and, and, and I think that what that to me leads into, because uh, there's so much to discuss and so little time in a sense, is Baker as Secretary of State. So he, he stays as Chief of Staff for, for a while. He, ha- he holds different positions, Secretary of Treasury, and um, from 85 to 88. But it's really when he gets to state that I think you see him blossom into what he really is today, what he's remembered for in, in, in certain member measure on the international stage. And his tenure in the State Department, you, you saw the unraveling of the Soviet Union, the reunification of Germany, Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, Middle East peace conversations. Baker's at the heart of all of these things. 
Um, and I'd like you again to, I love you telling stories. You're a great storyteller. <laughs> to, to, to tell us the stories of how Baker negotiates um, the relationship with the, the, the Russians about the um, Iraq um, invasion of, of Kuwait and then the Arab-Israeli agreement to talk in, in, in Madrid. Because I think those two are quintessential Baker at a much broader international level. Right. Well, that's right. I mean, what's interesting is that Baker really brought all those same skills, uh, whether it was to being chief of staff in the White House or uh, a decade later to being secretary of state, which, you know, clearly he saw correctly as the pinnacle uh, of his career. It also happened to coincide with perhaps the most consequential moment for a secretary of state uh, in, in a generation, uh, which was the unraveling of the Soviet Union. And Baker was extremely, he brought, a, I think, a strategic discipline uh, to the job as well that he had brought uh, to the challenge of running, say, national campaigns. He understood uh, that he and George Herbert Walker Bush would be judged uh, on the basis of how they handled uh, uh, this incredible uh, earthquake in the international order. And uh, he was very focused on uh, the Soviets from the beginning of his tenure uh, at the State Department. He uh, identified early on uh, that he needed to forge a different kind of relationship than any previous Secretary of State had ever had with the Soviet foreign minister, uh, Edward Shevardnadze at that time. It turned out that Shevardnadze was a unique and actually perfect partner for Jim Baker. He, he essentially was Mikhail Gorbachev's uh, confidant uh, and perhaps the, the person aside from Gorbachev inside the Politburo at that time, he was the most committed to the path of reform uh, at a time when the hardliners uh, inside the Communist Party were, were gathering strength and, and realized what a threat uh, that Gorbachev's perestroika represented to them. Baker teamed up with Shevardnadze and Gorbachev eventually. Uh, and, and in essence, uh, he and Bush became closer to the Soviet, those two Soviet leaders uh, than perhaps the, the Soviets were to the rest of their government. Uh, and Baker uh, invited Shevardnadze out to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which has been, you know, sort of his special place since he was since he was a young boy. Actually, uh, he has a ranch out there, and uh, as much as he's a, a proud fourth-generation Texan, he, he's he's really also uh, a, a Wyoming man of the West as well. And so he invites Shepard Nazi for this unique summit meeting in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. They go fishing, and by the way, it's actually not easy to find a quick translation for uh, uh, waders and fishing gear. Uh, in Russian. I can tell you that wasn't part of the Russian curriculum that, that Peter and I studied uh, for our posting in Moscow. At any rate, um, you know, this relationship building was part of it. Uh, and then a willingness also to act when action was finally required. You know, Baker and Bush were fundamentally conservative, small C people. They were uh, Margaret Tetweiler, his close aide, said he was Mr. Caution, uh, generally speaking. But, you know, when history is moving like that, when the Berlin Wall fell in November 1989, they didn't have a playbook for it. They didn't have a plan for it. In fact, they didn't even expect anything like this to happen. Uh, and yet probably this was the pinnacle of Jim Baker's career. Uh, the, the diplomacy that he launched into uh, to negotiate the framework by which the two Germanys would be reunified. I think for Peter and I, doing this part of the history was, was a real reminder uh, that no matter how inevitable 
it looks in hindsight. I'm um, just celebrated the 30th anniversary uh, of the, the deal that Baker ultimately negotiated uh, to reunify the, the two Germanys. This wasn't inevitable. Uh, and, you know, Margaret Thatcher was opposed. The French were against it. The hardliners here in Washington, as well as in the Soviet Union. It, it was a pretty remarkable feat. And so then you get to uh, that incredible period where the Soviet empire in Eastern Europe is unraveling. The two Germanys are being reunified. And then, boom, Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait. Uh, imagine if he'd done that a few months earlier, but this is when, uh, you know, Baker's relationship with Shevardnadze kicks in. And, you know, I mean, it's a pretty big moment, don't you think, Peter, for uh, the beginning of the post-Cold War? You could yeah, say so, it began then. Right. So Baker and Shevardnadze are having a mission trip in Russia in, 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 in response to the one that Baker had hosted in Wyoming when the Iraqi uh, tanks begin to move across the border. They're out in Lake Baikal trying to fish in, in the Siberia part of Russia, uh, Severnazi trying to return the hospitality to Baker. And neither one of them really saw it coming. Uh, and they were basically both flat-footed. And it, Baker then decides, well, they don't think it's really going to be a big full-on uh, invasion. And he goes off to Mongolia, Severnazi heads back to Moscow. But when it becomes clear by the time he, uh, Baker lands in Mongolia, that it really is a full-scale invasion. The whole country's been swallowed up. The whole country of Kuwait's been swallowed up. He immediately uh, tries to get Shevardnadze to agree to a joint statement and flies to Moscow. And the two of them stand together at the, the Nukovo airport and say, this shall not stand in effect. But they, the two of them together, the representatives of the United States and Soviet Union, for the first time, really, since World War II, together say, this is a violation of our international norms. We won't accept it. Boy, that's a whole new era. And your other question about the Middle East peace after the Gulf War, Baker recognizes the opportunity to perhaps bring the Israelis and Arabs together uh, in a way they had never done before. And he's shuttling across the region, back and forth, all over the place, to the point where like, he's sitting down with Hafez al-Assad from Syria so many times with what he called bladder diplomacy. But that meant was Assad would keep him in the room for six hours, seven hours, nine hours, without any bathroom breaks. And finally, in one of these uh, meetings, uh, Baker just pulls out his white handkerchief and waves it like a flag and says, oh, yeah, I give up. I, I got to go to the bathroom. But it was Assad's way of testing him. And Baker eventually forced Assad to, to, to agree to come to this conference. And that was the first time that it ever happened. So Baker's relentlessness, I think, was important. Yeah. And what's interesting, and I want to just go backwards and forward a little bit, is we know um, from your writings that, that, that Baker um, does not think highly of, of Trump. He's called him names, right? Has he not? Well, if you consider nuts and crazy to be names, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wanted you to say those words rather than, 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 than me. And, 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 and everything that, that Trump seems to be doing on the international stage seems to run counter to what Baker was, was, was trying to do. And yet Baker, at least in 2016, was a Trump supporter. We don't know yet. I suppose he's been a little bit ambiguous about um, next week. Um, but 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 speak to that a little bit. It's 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 a bit confounding, especially since the Bushes, um, in, in some sense, the mortal enemies of of Trump and the chief benefactor of Baker. Or maybe it's completely mutual. Um, you tell this touching story of of Jim Baker being one of the last in the room at Herbert Walker's death, sort of massaging his feet, you know, sort of saying, Mr. President, it, I'm here. Um, 
so talk talk a little bit about it. It's so it's so confusing, um, sort of ge in geopolitical terms, but also in in very base human terms. Well, that's right. I think it, it, for Peter and I, you know, we really struggled with this question over the last five years and watching uh, Baker struggle uh, with the rise of Trump and this uh, essentially hostile takeover of the Republican Party. Baker uh, uh, is certainly in many ways the un-Trump, uh, as you pointed out. Uh, he philosophically uh, continues to hold to a view of the Republican Party that uh, embraces American leadership in the world, internationalism, especially alliances, uh, which were really at the core of uh, Baker's approach to international diplomacy. He remains a free trader. He remains very skeptical and concerned about deficit spending. He, uh, you know, is still uh, essentially the Jim Baker of uh, being a global good citizen and a deal maker and, and a globalist. And um, also, of course, you know, just sort of offended by the, the sheer incompetence of the White House. So this is a man, you know, who's still widely considered the gold standard of White House chief of staff by Democrats as well as Republicans. Uh, and, uh, you know, also just the, the lying, uh, I think, and the, the sort of ethical corner cutting. I, I remember visiting with Secretary Baker in, in Houston just a few weeks after Trump was sworn in in 2017. And he said, you know, he's in his, you know, late 80s at this point. I just don't understand, Susan, like, why does Trump keep saying that Mexico is going to pay for the wall? Mexico is not going to pay for the wall. That he shouldn't be saying this. And, um, you know, yet what was interesting was that not only could Baker not fully renounce Trump, and therefore he saw it as equivalent to essentially renouncing the modern Republican Party, and that he refused to do. And so flash forward to this election, at one point, Peter and I were having lunch with him uh, uh, just a few blocks away from the White House, uh, and uh, he volunteered to us, well, maybe he could vote for Joe Biden. Biden is his kind of Democrat, a, more or less a centrist, a deal maker, uh, a creature of the Washington that Baker knew so well. And then a couple months later, uh, when Peter went to see him again, he said, please don't say that. Uh, I am still a Republican, even if my party has left me. And so I guess at, at a certain point, we realized rather than asking him the same question over and over again and looking for a different answer, uh, you know, that perhaps when you're the subject of your biography tells you who he is, you need to, to listen to him. And I think if you want to understand why uh, more than 40 percent and, and more than 45 percent of Americans, who knows, next week are going to vote for Donald Trump, uh, you know, the, these conversations suggest why that is and how it is that uh, many Republicans are like uh, Jim Baker today, and they essentially have chosen uh, a version of party over, um, you know, any kind of different uh, calculation about what it means to have a man in the White House with whom they do disagree or whose character uh, they find objectionable. Uh, and, you know, it's just it's one of those paradoxes of our time, I think. Yeah, but it, it, it it's so confounding because I always think of, of of Baker and we can talk a little bit about what you write about me and Baker uh, in, 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 in a little bit. But but what I always felt about Baker was that whether you agreed with him or disagreed with him, he was a person who had principles that that mattered to him and that he adhered to. It wasn't that he was, you know, sort of an 
uh, an ideologue. Um, he wasn't, you know, a, a, a grand visionary with, uh, you know, an ideal, an ideological underpinning. He was more of a practical um, uh, person. But yet he has, you know, given off at age 90 party for principle. And, and you spent a lot of time with him. And maybe I'm asking the same question again, but I still remain <laughs> confounded um, um, by it. Yeah. You know, welcome to our struggle. <laughs> You're right. You're right. There are some people uh, since we published our book who worked closely with uh, uh, Jim Baker, who were very distraught, really, uh, to see what they view as a rationalization uh, on his part. Um, you know, I again, he, he has not uh, been yielding in the least about this. And I think you can also see in Baker's story and in the story of the Republican Party in the 1980s, we tend to focus on his achievements as a statesman or, you know, at the at the Treasury Department as the person who negotiated uh, the 1986 uh, tax cut. Uh, but there's also the through line of where we got to in our dysfunctional electoral politics, uh, you know, can be said to start with some of the campaigns and the uh, politicization of the, the 1980s as well. Yeah. So well, let's talk about it. Just to weigh in on no, the, the I, paradox of Trump. I agree. I, everything she said, I agree with. <laughs> that's why you're in the 20th year of your marriage. Yeah. <laughs> well, you don't need me to repeat it, but I think that that's all true. That doesn't mean that he didn't have principle. I mean, I think he does, and I think he finds a lot of the things that Trump has done very, very troubling. I'll, I'll tell you one story about this. During the impeachment trial, for instance, earlier this year, cover the impeachment trial during the day, come home at night, work on the book. When I uh, worked, I was going through some of the files uh, and I found this memo that we had obviously copied from the Princeton archives where Baker keeps his papers, but we hadn't used in the book because I don't think it really struck us at first. And the memos that recorded an event in 1992 when Bush is running for re-election. Uh, and Michael, we can talk about your encounter with him right afterwards. And Clinton had been overseas as a young man, protested the Vietnam War, and there's this whole thing about, well, he'd gone to Moscow, why did he go to Moscow? And the Republican congressman came in to see Bush and Baker that day and said, you need to ask Russia for help on getting dirt about Clinton. And this is exactly what the impeachment trial was all about. At that very same time, Trump was on trial for asking another country, in this case, Ukraine, for help against his domestic rival, meaning Biden. Here, we had this parallel you know, moment in 1992, almost 30 years earlier, and in the memo, Baker records that Bush and he told the Republicans, no, we don't do that. We don't ask foreign governments for help in our domestic political battles. And I just thought that was so fascinating. We obviously added it to the book at that point because it did seem like it was a, a precursor to things we would see later about how much has changed in Washington since then. Yeah, and and but it segues into two things. One is one is sort of the, 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 the my and Joe DeGeneva's independent counsel investigation where where Baker features um, uh, prominently, which we talk about in one second. But but I think also what we're learning about Baker too was that while there was a pragmatism uh, and a willingness to, to to make a deal to get something done, when it came when he was as free of negotiation as 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 a human being can be. There was like no negotiation in him. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the the Florida recount, which is, you know, maybe a portend of what we're going to find on November 
for um, what it is that happened on the end of the uh, uh, Gorby Bush election and where is Baker and what, how was he utilized? Um, so tell, take a, st- a step back. Bush is running against against Gore, and um, Baker is where? And then the election turns out to be deadlocked, essentially as an electoral college matter. What is Bush? How does Bush turn to Baker? And 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 then tell us about uh, Baker and 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 Warren Christopher because it's a wonderful story. Well, you know, look, Peter's point about that 1992 campaign and, you know, what Baker and Bush wouldn't do uh, in the service of Bush's reelection. Well, uh, that reelection didn't turn out too well. uh, And uh, in fact, was a very challenging moment in the Bush-Baker relationship, as you might imagine. Uh, Baker had been pulled back out of the State Department to run the campaign. uh, But, uh, you know, members even of the Bush family felt that it was not only too late, Uh, at that point, but that Baker's heart wasn't in it. Uh, Barbara Bush called him the invisible man. At one point, Bush loses that campaign. uh, And uh, then just a few years later, right, you have George W. Bush running for president, governor of Texas, and eager to seem his own man. Uh, So he keeps Baker and a number of uh, other advisors from his father's administration really at arm's length throughout the course of that year. Uh, to give himself an identity in his own right. But uh, as soon as that election proves to be deadlocked on the question of what happened in Florida, literally uh, the very first thing the next morning, George W. Bush calls Jim Baker and says, I need you to go to Florida. I need you to lead uh, our efforts on the ground to save uh, you know, this victory. And um, Baker, of course, immediately agrees and is literally on a private plane headed to Florida within hours uh, that day after the election. And, you know, the Democrats had their own former uh, secretary of state. You mentioned Warren Christopher, who had been Bill Clinton's secretary of state, uh, a very courtly gentleman. Uh, But I have to say, uh, when we were working in the book and we mentioned this to some Democrats, they said, you know, as soon as we knew that Baker was going to be up against Christopher, we knew that Baker would win. We knew that Bush was in. Uh, and, you know, that may overstate uh, Baker's ability. Obviously, he did not dictate uh, the five to four Supreme Court ruling that ultimately uh, became Bush v. Gore. In fact, interestingly, he, he wasn't even 100 percent sure uh, when it went to the Supreme Court eventually uh, how it would turn out. But there's this great scene where uh, Christopher and Baker are meeting. Uh, and in Christopher's mind, he's clear to schedule. Uh, this is going to be two elder statesmen rolling up their sleeves and, you know, coming up with a deal to save the country from this awkward mess. Uh, you know, he's got a, a plan A for the negotiations with Baker, a plan B, a plan C. Baker's having none of it. He walks into the room. How are you doing, Chris? Uh, you know, I'm not sure what we're here to discuss, frankly. Uh, My candidate won, as far as I'm concerned, and I'm here uh, to make sure that he keeps winning. And the meeting, uh, which Christopher expected to go on for hours, lasted for about 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because, and and we saw that, we saw that, I mean, you you say that Baker, um, known to the Bushes as Jimmy, Baker um, and 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 Jimmy forged their 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 relationship on on the tennis courts, which must have been do or die um, 
<laughs> tennis matches because neither of them uh, uh, like to lose. And so you have this Gore v. Bush where, where Christopher is saying, we won and, and, and there's no negotiating with you. And then you roll back a little bit and, and you have uh, uh, Willie Horton and, mm-hmm. and, and that whole uh, sort of series of, of, of events. Maybe you could talk, because I think these two things, the, the Willie Horton ad, and maybe you can give our younger viewers uh, a little history lesson in that. And then this Gore v. Bush, there is no negotiation here. Um, or speak to another aspect of, of Baker, which I think undergirded a lot of why people negotiated with him because he was a he was a formidable fellow. I mean, if you got into a fight with him, odds didn't favor you winning. <laughs> well, that's right, exactly. So you mentioned 1988 campaign for your younger viewers, as you point out. Um, this is a pretty no-holds-barred battle between George H.W. Bush, who was then the vice president, and Michael Dukakis, who was a Democratic nominee. Dukakis came out of the convention 17 points up when Baker takes over the campaign. And so they're in really bad shape here. But they end up waging a really tough, you know, uh, ruthless, knife-fighting kind of campaign against Dukakis. And they portray him as a uh, Pledge of Allegiance-hating, flag-burning, criminal-coddling, you know, ACLU card-carrying liberal. Uh, at the heart, what everybody remembers, of course, is this Willie Horton ad. Now, Willie Horton was uh, a, a convicted murderer who was in prison in Massachusetts, who was let out of prison for on a weekend furlough program that was controversial. And during one of these furloughs, he raped a, uh, a woman in Maryland and brutalized her, her boyfriend or fiance. And that was made into an ad, not by the Bush campaign, but by one of the independent organizations. And it was seen as very racist because it used a black face to scare white voters. So that that moment was, you know, uh, seen as a precursor to some ways of the politics we see today. Now, the difference between then and now is when that election was over, Baker then literally weeks afterwards sits down in the apartment of Bob Strauss, who was the former Democratic national chairman, with Jim Wright, the Democratic Speaker of the House, to negotiate a deal to end the Contra War. So for Baker, it could be cutthroat politics, but once the election was over, you tried to use uh, that power you just gained to do something, and you work with the other side rather than just demonize them. So that's where things have changed even more drastically since then. Yeah, and it's interesting. We're going to speak in a, in a week or so with um, Julian Zelizer about his book on on Gingrich, and you you, you see these these through lines of of Gingrich and and, and the, the 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 vitriol that that gave him the power that he ultimately got as Speaker through the Tea Party to Trump, and then you see Baker sort of in a, in a parallel line trying to still be practical and and, uh, and, a, and a deal maker. So it's just like these parallel universes um, within the Republican Party going on um, throughout this whole sort of period of time that, that we're talking about here. You know, Michael, I think that's an excellent point because, you know, the thing about Baker is that he wasn't ever the culture warrior. He wasn't personally the practitioner of scorched earth zero sum politics. Uh, even in 1988, it was Lee Atwater, of course, who was the, the, the campaign ad maker strategist who said, you know, at one point, I'm going to uh, uh, make sure that uh, Willie Horton is, is Michael Dukakis is running mate. And, uh, you know, Baker, uh, goes along with it, though. 
right? And he he's a ruthlessly unsentimental character, whether in international diplomacy or in politics. And he clearly believed in 1988 that, that eviscerating Michael Dukakis in this way was the only way to win. And so, you know, he went along with the same thing in the Reagan era, going back to his, the, you know, his beginnings uh, at the height of national politics, right? He wasn't a culture warrior himself. Uh, in fact, he was often on the other side of the internal feuds uh, in the Republican Party, going all the way back to the Reagan era uh, uh, on some of the, the those kind of politics. Right. Uh, he, he was the short term victor uh, in in that and arguably the long term loser. Uh, what he didn't do was renounce the party when it moved more firmly away from him. Uh, you know, Gingrich, uh, he had no time for Newt Gingrich uh, as Newt Gingrich was coming up and roiling uh, the House Republicans. He thought he was a troublemaker uh, and a pain in the butt, and he was. Uh, and he didn't have much to do with his brand of politics either. And yet the interesting thing is that, um, you know, Baker proceeded with his brand of politics, but now that we live in the world where uh that seems like it belongs in a museum. Uh, you know, he still identifies as a Republican Party, even though these are arguably uh, the people who he he fought against internally uh, in the internecine warfare, uh, who have come to dominate it. Yeah, you you right. Baker never lost sight of what was good for Jim Baker, but somehow in the main it worked. They got things done. Is that it in a nutshell? That that that. Baker, Baker was taking care of Baker, but in the main, they were able to, on the sides of it, get things done, or was really that uh, sort of a little bit backwards in the sense that they got things done and it turned out to be good for Jim Baker. What was the, what was the priority there? As you've got to know him, you, you may know him better than, than any third party observer of, of him because he's a pretty buttoned up guy. Yeah. Well, look, I do think he thought that getting stuff done was good for Jim Baker. That's true. And I, but he also was in a, in a cutthroat environment, whether it be in the White House or in Washington more generally. And he looked out for himself. And, you know, and that, that did sometimes irritate other people. Uh, no question about it. Even Nancy Reagan says in her memoir, you know, that she never lost sight of the fact that Baker was, you know, uh, making sure to take care of himself. But she also respected the fact that he was good. And what he did and what he was doing that might have been good for Baker was also good for her husband, Ronald Reagan. And it tell, I think it's very telling that when she passed away uh, four years ago, the person she asked to give the eulogy at her funeral was Jim Baker. So I think that there, you know, these things are not mutually exclusive. And I think that's what Baker, uh, you know, d- demonstrates to some extent. Yeah. And, and, and you, you touched upon it um, on this what's good for Baker and good for the country story. Uh, and, and maybe it dovetails into the story about you and me and 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 and, and Baker. Baker is Secretary of of State. He's, as we talked about, he's bringing together the Germanies. He's 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 dealing with the the, the Iraq invasion of Kuwait. He's trying to bring peace in 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 the Middle East, and he's dealing with the unraveling of the of the Soviet Union. And he's really found his stride in a sense, and he's doing something that he's very happy doing and he's doing something that he thinks is important his his legacy in a sense is 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 wrapped up right there in all of those activities and bush takes him out of state and makes him come back to the white house to be the the, the chief of staff a job he didn't want to do at all but but yet 
but yet did out of out of out of friendship, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's right. That was probably the toughest time in his career. And I, I that's one of the revelations, actually, uh, I think we found in, in working on the book. Uh, I was uh, knew, of course, that Baker hadn't wanted to leave the State Department, uh, but both the lengths that he tried to go to in order to avoid going to campaign, including uh, actually manufacturing uh, more or less a kind of bogus last ditch effort at Middle East peace, uh, which even his advisor said is, is not going to happen. <laughs> Uh, and and once he got there, he was I mean, it, it might have been one of the few times in his life with the other time being the period after the death of his first wife from cancer and, and being left alone with four young sons. He was one of the, the few times in his life he was really almost clinically depressed. Uh, he was extremely withdrawn in a way, not himself. Uh, 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 aides were worried about him to the point of asking his wife what was going on with him, a sense that he was disengaged from the campaign, uh, not convening the type of meetings or having the type of meticulous oversight that he was used, uh, you know, known for. Uh, and, you know, again, he's not an introspective fellow, even in our many, many hours of interviews, you know, it's not like he sat down with us and said, well, you know, uh, I was despondent and I, you know, it's because I thought we were going to lose. I suspect it was because he knew that the writing was on the wall for Bush and that he couldn't help him. He couldn't save him. Uh, that clearly was a part of it. Uh, and he may have been in, in a period of mourning for understanding that he had this incredible moment uh, to shine on the world stage. And, you know, he wasn't going to get the chance to, to finish the job. But the person who really made Jim Baker <laughs> right. feel depressed is Michael Zeldin. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> it's not you, 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 you can tell you can tell him you can tell your, your the listening public about I think I appear on like page 514 of, of the book you saved you saved it to the end to keep the reader engaged I know it's the best page it's the best page it should go straight there so it, at, during the campaign you know we talked about how Bill Clinton had been overseas there was this rumor running around that he had tried to renounce his citizenship while he was a young man overseas didn't happen, but uh, some of Baker's aides at the State Department go ruffling through his pa passport files to see whether it's the case. Now, they were responding to media requests under the Freedom of Information Act, but the question is whether they were doing something beyond the, what the career public service is supposed to do to politicize something uh, in violation of the Privacy Act, right? I think Michael can explain it better. And after after the election, there's an invest investigation is started by Bill Barr, who is the Attorney General, and calls the appointment of the Independent Counsel who is Joe DeGeneva and Michael is the deputy, is that right? A deputy independent yeah. counsel. And you should tell about the story about going to interview Baker about this because it's really a great story. So the, the Bill Clinton is winning and he's winning on it's the economy, stupid. And, and um, Baker and Bush are trying to portray Clinton as unworthy of the office, morally and ethically too challenged to be the president of the United States. We know that Clinton had written a letter uh, to the draft board about retaining his political viability, and that's why he was going to come back from his Rhodes Scholarship to become a member of the um, the, the eligible for the for the for the National Guard or or some something. He was never going to Vietnam. That that was that was for, for certain. But there was a rumor that had been started in in Arkansas that while overseas, he had written a letter of renunciation of citizenship. Now, of course, you can't run for president and have having sought a letter of renunciation of, of citizenship. And so the, 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 the story was that 
they were desperate to find this letter of renunciation of citizenship. And as you said, there were media requests uh, under the Freedom of Information Act to see about letters of renunciation of citizenship, but the queue for Freedom of Information Act requests is really long. It's not going to happen between the time that they're requested and the time that the election comes around. Similarly, there were uh, there were what they call congressionals. Gerald Solomon, uh, a Republican congressman out of New York, asks for letters of renunciation of citizenship for pot- potentially passing legislation to prevent people who sought renunciation of citizenship to, to run for run president. All of a sudden, there's this great interest in letters of renunciation of, of citizenship. And it seems that this was all going on under Baker's watch. Is that is that what is that what yeah. your reporting revealed? Yes, exactly. Yes. And, and, and he, that, he asked his aides what the status of the search was, and his request, you know, obviously prompted some pretty quick action, as you would imagine it would. Yeah. The, and and there are late night searches in Suitland, Maryland, after hours for Bill Clinton's passport files and the the FOIA requests are, are all of a sudden miraculously brought to the top of the list and the congressionals come forward. And we so we bring in Baker because we want to know what is going on here. Were you, um, Secretary Baker, um, responsible for all of this and bring with you your lawyer and 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 your papers? Because, you know, there could have been a crime. There could have been Civil violations, but there could have been a crime. So Baker walks into the office, and this is what you you write about. And I don't like to tell the stories that you tell better. No, no it's your story. You should tell it. And I, and we say, well, give us your file. You know, tell us what there is. And we go start going through this file, and in the file there are all these memos to the file that Baker has written contemporaneously, which says like, I'm shocked, shocked. You know, it's it's a scene out of Casablanca that he has all these memos in there which say. And this is the first time I'm hearing of this. And I was surprised to learn of this. Did we believe that? Uh, you know, maybe not. But but what what it taught us about Baker, and what I think you so well document is he knew how Washington worked. He knew what he needed to protect, how he needed to protect himself. He had all these um, CYA sort of memos to the files, and there was nothing that was going to stick to, to, to Jim Baker. And ultimately it led to us, you know, finding no, no wrongdoing and, and, and Joe DeGeneva apologizing to the subject of our um, independent counsel investigation. It, it, it was such a traumatic moment for him because he did value his reputation. He valued the, the idea that he was a, had great integrity and he hated the idea that he was under investigation so much that if you, we found in Bush's diary, all these entries, in that period saying, I can't believe how depressed Jim Baker is. Jim Baker is totally out of it. He wants to resign. It was really a very traumatic moment for him. Nobody else remembers this except you and us, but, and, but he does. And it was a really big moment for him. Yeah. And because and, when he came in, I mean, they, they, had, they had just lost the election. We were appointed and we started, we, we immediately went to the White House. We grabbed all of the computer hard drives, we went to the State Department and did the same thing. And then we started our interviews. And and Baker came in, I forget who his lawyer was, maybe Lloyd Cutler or somebody, a famous Dem was his lawyer, uh, which which speaks volumes also. He was not going to bring somebody um, that didn't have, you know, gravitas w- yeah. with, with Democrats. And he had all of this, you know, 
weight of having been forced out of the State Department back to the White House into what was a losing cause, and now he's under potential criminal investigation, and he, like Margaret Tutwiler and, and, and Janet Mullins, the others who were subject, so valued, properly so, so valued their, their, their good name and their reputation. And you could see the weight of this on him, which um, it was telling. I mean, it's, it was like the first sign of human um, <laughs> emotion that, yeah. that 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 you speak to, in, in, say for the loss of his wife, which was obviously the, the, a turning point um, in 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 his life, and then the loss of his friend H.W. Uh, Bush. You don't get much emotion from him, do you? Well, I mean, look, a couple of postscripts to this incident. Uh, number one, uh, Baker certainly is a believer in you know getting even uh you know even if it takes a long time uh he held a grudge uh against the Houston Chronicle uh for not endorsing him in his only uh political campaign in 1978 when he lost a race for Texas attorney general it took him uh years but he got even with them uh all the way in the 1986 tax reform bill by uh basically forcing the sale of the Houston Chronicle. Uh, same thing with Bill Barr and uh, that investigation. He has not uh, given up holding a grudge against uh, our former and now current, once again, Attorney General Bill Barr. And, and Jim Baker does not think highly of him for having chosen on the very last day possible to appoint an independent counsel that would potentially sully his, Jim Baker's good name. And interestingly, this question of, you know, how do you, play hardball politics and survive with your reputation intact. That, that's a theme that runs through Baker's story. And actually, when we were doing a couple of events with Baker, um, and I and he said this before uh, this, but we did a couple of events with him after the book came out. And somebody asked him, of course, very typical question. Well, sir, you know, what do you think, uh, you know, you should be remembered for in your time in Washington? And, you know, he does a sort of song and a dance. And he says, well, you know, uh, I served in Washington at the highest levels and I never got indicted. Uh, and it sounds all jokey, but the truth is, is that, you know, he's referencing this investigation and, you know, the real cutting effort as he saw it to, to sully his good name. This is a man for whom politics uh, was a bit of a rebellion, uh, whose family was Houston aristocracy. And their one motto was, uh, work hard, study, and stay out of politics. And he was very, very concerned, I think, throughout his time in public life, not to sully the Baker name, which, uh, you know, grew up meaning a lot to him and grew up meaning something if you were from Houston. Yeah. And and, and his reputation for preparedness, um, uh, knowing, like in the chess game, all of the moves that were coming forward, this little investigation of ours really was something that he had no control over. He, he couldn't control Joe DeGeneva. He couldn't control me. Uh, he couldn't control our analysis of, of the facts. He couldn't control whether or not we would believe him that he was just learning about this um, now, as opposed to being the puppeteer, the puppet master um, behind it. And, and it was so interesting to, 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 to see a, a man of his, you know, stature, and I hope he doesn't carry a grudge against me, <laughs> um, showing some human, some human emotion. Now, when we talked to him, he didn't have anything to say about, uh, 
you or Joe DeGeneva that was negative in any way. It was really just Bill Barr as the one. And Barr actually, later after leaving office, comes to visit Houston to kind of try to make up with Baker because he's heard that Baker's mad at him. Baker's not having any of it. He says, we're just, you know, he just gave it back to him. I don't think you had to do what you had to do. And I don't, I, I still don't see it the way you do. Yeah. So uh, we're, we're coming to the end of the hour and I, and, and I, and I, I want to ask you a personal question, but I want to ask you um, a, a substantive question first. The, the book, which I loved, um, ends, the last paragraph of this book, I think is just lo- lovely. And, and, and you write of Baker, he seemed content, period. Baker had always known where he came from and he had always known where he would end up. It was everything in between that came as a surprise. And, and I think that's just, just wonderful. Although I'm not so sure that it, it didn't come completely as a matter of hard preparation. What was the what was the motto in his family about multiple the um, priorities? Prior preparation prevents poor performance. And you get extra say it again, prior, prior preparation prevents poor performance. Say it again, yeah. three or four times. <laughs> <laughs> but so, but was everything else in between? A surprise, or was this the the best laid plans of of a, of a, of, a, of a a person who had a had a plan for himself? I don't. Or was he just an accidental tourist? Absolutely, he's an accidental, indispensable man, Jim Baker, and and this is true of many people in politics. He's a damn lucky fellow. Uh, in addition to having uh, enormous discipline, hard work, uh, you know, he just. Uh, it's a series of stories about playing on bigger and progressively bigger and bigger playing fields uh, for him, many of which he never expected. You know, he didn't train like Henry Kissinger uh, to be an international diplomat. Finding himself uh, naked in a sauna with uh, uh, Edward Shepard Nazi is not something that Jim Baker, uh, even at the age of uh, 50, ever expected. Maybe <laughs> Well, that's how you do diplomacy with the Soviet diplomats. Right. Uh, you know, the bottom line is that, uh, you know, he couldn't have anticipated that uh, Watergate would take out, uh, uh, you know, the Republican Party as he knew it, uh, or even that great tragedy uh, and what looked to be the devastation of his early uh, life uh, would end up also providing the opportunity for him to do something so different and outside the expectations of his family. But I'm glad that the book ends uh, there with his family and, you know, the rootedness uh, in Houston and in this place uh, is is really, for us, I think that was one of the maybe surprises of this is how much Baker's is a story about the Baker family and about uh, the demands and the constraints along with the great privilege that came along with being the fourth uh, James Addison Baker, even though actually he's James A. Baker third. really he's the fourth. Uh, and even after seven years, we can't fully tell you why that is. Uh, but the truth is that, you know, being James Addison Baker uh, meant uh, an enormous amount and it shaped who this person was. And so, uh, you know, it's fitting. And he actually took us to visit, uh, you know, where he plans to have his grave uh, in the same cemetery where, where his ancestors are. And I think it's a, it's a fitting end to the book. Yeah. The burdens we carry, I guess, in a sense. Um, um, and, and 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 for certain, whether you agree with his policies or not, the 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 man is 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 a marvel to be, behold. Um, nobody that you can think of in the post World War II era was perhaps as as important an unelected 
person as was uh, James A. Baker III. And I'm so grateful to both of you for bringing this story to our attention because as you said, there was nobody else who had biographized. We're still using that word. I'm expecting that you two are going to get into the dictionary. <laughs> sure. Thank yeah. you so much, Michael, for your interest in it. What, yeah. what, a, what a great conversation. Yeah, we very much enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Have a great night. You too. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.